Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So I hope everyone's been having a wonderful Shabbat. Uh, for those of you who are new here for, this, for the first time, if Simcha is... Actually, no, I really need this remote control. Oh, here it goes. I got it. Thank you. So for those of you who are here for the first time or are new to our synagogue, if Simcha Yisrael was the L.A. Lakers, uh, Rabbi Tony would be Shaquille O'Neal, and I would be that guy who sells beer and hot dogs. I have a box around his neck. So... I always like to use the weekly Torah portion as my inspiration for what I talk about when I'm up here. But this week is a little challenging. Up till now, the story that the Torah has been telling has been a very human one. Throughout the book of Genesis, you know, we've been hearing stories of God's early interactions with humans like Adam and Eve and Noah. And then we see the stories of our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and their wives too, let's not forget about them. Uh, Exodus continues the tradition telling the story of Moses and how God delivered the Jewish people and brought them out of Egypt. And it's been really great. These are human stories. They're super relatable and teachable, and it's pretty easy to learn great lessons from them. However, it would seem that the story has somewhat peaked. There's this amazing and dramatic giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai where God appears before the gathered children of Israel with thunder and lightning and billowing smoke and blowing trumpets, proclaims his commandments to the Hebrews who cry out in one voice that they will listen and obey and be his people forever. And immediately following that, the story kind of slows down. You know, once years ago, I was watching one of my favorite movies, uh, The Prince of Egypt, with a friend. If you haven't seen the movie... It ends with Moses walking down the mountain, carrying the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And then it just ends. And my friend was like, why did it end there? I want to see what happens next. And I was like, well, what happens next just wouldn't make a very good movie. It's it's mostly just building codes and sacrificial laws and instructions on how to make clothing. It would seem that the human part of this story has mostly been told at least for now, gets good again next week. Moses, who's been a key figure in this story from the moment of his birth, isn't even mentioned in this week's Parsha. Starting last week and continuing into this week, the Torah portion has all been about, about the building of the Mishkan, a tabernacle where the presence of God would reside in the midst of Israel. This isn't a human story anymore. It's God's story. And God's stories are a lot harder to understand and grasp and take valuable lessons from. But if you guys are down, and I'm willing to take a shot at it and see what we can learn by taking a journey into the Mishkan. So we're going to go way down the rabbit hole this week. I'm not any kind of Kabbalist, but some of this stuff we're going to talk about is going to border on the, for lack of a better term, mystical. We're going to talk about angels and hyperspace and antimatter, and it's going to get really weird, but hopefully fun. And just maybe when we're done, we'll have learned a little something about the nature of God, and maybe even a little about ourselves. So let's dive in, shall we? If you have your Bibles with you, the relevant passages are in Exodus 25 and 26, where we see a detailed description of how the Mishkan is supposed to be built. And this is great if you actually want to build one of these things. And and, and people have, you know. But it doesn't really make for riveting reading. You know, these are the parts of the Bible that we usually skim rather than read. 
It's okay. Every, everyone does it. I know some of you were like this today. You know, but let's slow down. And let's take a look at something that I think is pretty cool and interesting. So, amidst all these instructions, we get a pretty famous image that I'm sure you've all seen a representation of. The Parsha describes a cover for the ark, on top of which there are these two carved images of angelic beings called cherubim, almost like children's images, with their wings arching out towards one another, providing a kind of sheltering presence over the ark itself. It was from from between these cherubim that the voice of God would speak to Moses once the tabernacle was constructed. Now, most folks know about these cherubim, but did you know that the cherubs actually appear in two other places in the Mishkan? Inside the Mishkan, there was a veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, where the ark was. This veil was a woven tapestry that images of these cherubim sewn onto them. And the third place was these ten curtains that would form a kind of a roof over the Mishkan. And woven into the tapestry of these curtains were more of the cherubs. So we see these cherubim three different times in the Mishkan. And the question is, why? Why are these angels in these three places and nowhere else? They're not etched into the menorah or in the courtyard or in the altars. They're just on the curtains, the veil, and the cover. Why are they in the Mishkan and why in these three places? Let's take a step back. A couple weeks ago, I was at a UMJC leadership conference. And over and over again, the people leading the seminars would ask us the question, why? Why are you doing the things that you do? Why do you believe what you believe? Why should other people care about the things that you care about? In a partial like this, with all its instructions and details, it's easy to get bogged down in the how and forget about the why. Forget about how to build a tabernacle. Why did we build the Mishkan? What was it that we were trying to accomplish when we built it? When we built the Mishkan, we were emulating God. Man was created in the image of the Almighty, in the image of the Creator. It's our very purpose of, of the purpose of our very lives to emulate God. How do we do that? One of the ways is by creating. But how do we create as God created? Well, first we have to look at what God created. So let's head all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. You should all know this story by now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He brings forth life and creates all the animals and plants and human beings. God carved out a little bit of everything and made a world specifically for us. Now, the Bible dramatically understates the magnitude of this accomplishment. When God created a world for us to live in, he had to construct it very carefully in order for it to be able to support life. The constants of the universe need to be very finely tuned to be able to work for carbon-based beings that breathe air and drink water and only live in a very narrow range of temperatures. And that's even before you get to all the delicate balances between the various force strengths of the universe that allow for such things as stars and planets and all that good stuff out of which our universe is made. You know, there's this book by astrophysicist Dr. Martin Rees called Just Six Numbers, where he outlines just how perfectly aligned 
the laws of nature are, and how if they varied by even a millionth of a degree, the universe would never have come into being or been able to support life. Gravitational forces or nuclear efficiency been slightly different, the universe would have imploded or the stars would never have formed. God created a universe that is perfectly suited for us. So in order to emulate God, to create as he creates, we in turn have to build a world that is perfectly suited for him. That's the why of the Mishkan. We built this so that God could have a place to dwell with us. But that's a tall order. How do we build an environment perfectly suited for God? We have no idea what God's environment is like. How can we create something that we have no concept of? It sounds impossible, but the rabbis posit a theory that there is a logic to how we can build a world for God. And that logic is found in the three places that we find the cherubim in the Mishkan. The curtains, the veil, and the covering for the ark. So, let's go back to one of our earlier questions. Why are the cherubim in these three places only? What do these three things have in common? Besides the angels, of course. They, they all serve as partitions. They create separations. The curtains that form the roof separate the Mishkan from the rest of the world. The veil separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the Mishkan. And the covering separates the contents of the Ark from the rest of the Holy of Holies. Three levels of separation. When we create a world for God, we create three different separations. Why is that? Because we're emulating God. And when God made a world for us, he also created three different separations. Is everyone still open to Genesis? Let's take a look. God makes three separations between light and darkness, between the seas and the air, and between day and night. Now, the rabbis theorize that the separations in the Mishkan mirror the separations in creation. Everyone still with me? Okay, good. This is where things get really weird. Okay. Remember, God created a world that is perfectly suited for us, and he did it by creating these separations in our universe that make it so we can live. God doesn't need things like gravity or the laws of thermodynamics. He was doing just fine without them. He created them so that we could have a place where we can live. We built the Mishkan so that God can have a place where he can live. Now, we don't know what God's world is like. We just know that it's not like ours. The rabbis suggest that in order to create a little world where God can exist, we have to undo these separations and symbolically and mystically recreate the universe before creation. Wasn't kidding about going down the rabbit hole. This is starting to sound preposterous, right? How are, we, how are some curtains and a veil supposed to undo creation itself? It sounds like a crazy person theory, but let's see if it actually works. Let's take a look at these three fundamental separations in creation. We may find an intriguing one-to-one correspondence between those and the ones in the Mishkan. So let's try it as we walk through the Torah's account of creation in Genesis. So the first great separation is between light and darkness. This sounds very simple, 
You know, we can even really easily imagine what this must have looked like. God even gives these simple human-sounding names. He calls light day and darkness night. But think about it objectively. It couldn't actually have been day and night as we understand it now. The sun hasn't been created yet. The truth of what really happened here when God separated light and dark must be much stranger and more otherworldly. The first thing God did was say, let there be light. And you would imagine that there was light everywhere, huge and blinding and all present. But then the Torah tells us something very strange. God separates the light from the darkness. What, what darkness? I don't see any of that. <laughs> darkness is just the absence of light. It's not a thing by itself. Light isn't absent anymore. There's light everywhere. What the Torah seems to be saying is that right there, in that moment, before God separated them, the darkness and the light were somehow mixed together. This is almost impossible for humans to conceive. I couldn't even find a really good picture to represent this. Darkness and light just don't coexist like this. You almost have to imagine a swirl of light energy and dark energy where the dark isn't just an absence of light, but a real physical presence in the world. And this sounds like insanity, but this is something that actually exists in nature, at least hypothetically. Dark matter is a hypothetical substance that scientists believe make up 95% of the mass of the universe. It's hypothetical because it's pure antimatter, and we're beings of matter. We can't interact with this stuff. We can't even observe it with any of the methods that we've developed yet. We know it's there because we can observe its effects, but this stuff is just pure darkness, and we have no place in it until God creates light. The other 5% of the universe the part we can live in and we can see and we can interact with. God's first great separation creates light and a world we can exist in. So uh, what's the second separation? According to the Torah, God creates a space between the lower waters, the seas, and the upper waters, the clouds. Think about what it would be like if there was no sky, if earth was just this big water world with a liquid atmosphere. Even fish wouldn't be able to survive there. Humans can't breathe water. We can't even move around in it very well. God creates this space for us with oxygen and all these nice things and space we can move around in. God's first separation creates light and the world we can exist in. His second separation creates space and the world we can live in. So what's the third separation? Let there be lights in the heavens. Now, let's stop here. If I were to ask you, what's the significance of the sun? You'd say, oh, well, there wouldn't be any life without the sun. It's our energy source. It gives us heat and light. And that's all true and very good. But that's not how the Torah describes the sun here. It talks about the sun as a marker of time. These lights are to separate between day and night and to be signs to help us count the days and the months and the years. They give us a way to mark time and help us find our place in time. You know, without these lights, we would always be disoriented. We wouldn't know when to sleep or go to work or plant crops or how old we are or how long it's been since we last did something. God's first separation creates light and the world we can exist in. His second separation creates space and the world we can live in. The third separation creates time 
and a world that we can thrive in. These are the three great separations of creation. It's what makes this world habitable for these fragile creatures we call humans. But God doesn't need any of these things. He exists outside of creation. So to create God's world, you have to symbolically go backwards through the separations, back to a time before creation. So now, let's look at the separations inside the Mishkan. First separation in the Mishkan, the first place we encounter the cherubim is the curtains that form the roof. So what do these curtains separate between? So picture yourself standing outside the Mishkan. There are people walking around and talking, going about their business for the day. The sun's shining, birds are chirping, butterflies are doing whatever butterflies do. Then you, then you step through the curtains. And all those sounds and sights disappear. You look up and you don't see the sun anymore or the stars or the moon. You have been separated from the outside world. The curtains get rid of the heavenly lights. Time has no meaning inside this place. Anyone who spent any amount of time in a casino knows what I'm talking about. This is, this is the same principle much holier. So now you're inside the Mishkan and you're looking at the se- second separation, the second place where we see the cherubim, the veil. The veil separates between the Mishkan and the Holy of Holies, the most sacred of spaces. If you were really there, your journey, unless your name is Moses, your journey would end at this veil. You wouldn't be able to step through and approach the ark. The Torah tells us that no human can just walk into the Holy of Holies. It's too sacred. Humans just can't go in there and live. Just as when God separated the waters from the waters, and made a space for humans to live in, that veil separates between habitable human space and a place where we can't live. Hold up. Are we really getting rid of the concept of space itself by crossing this veil, like we got rid of the concept of time when we entered the Mishkan? Time is a pretty abstract concept. It's not that hard to imagine a world without it. But space... A three-dimensional world is concrete. It's really concrete. There's this novel by Edwin Abbott called Flatland, and it's a story of a completely flat, two-dimensional world inhabited by intelligent polygons, like Mr. Square and Sir Triangle and such. Now, one day, an intelligent sphere travels to Flatland, and no one there can even comprehend his existence. He's so different and so outside their experience, they can't even imagine him until he invites him to visit his world, Spaceland. Is that what's happening here in the Mishkan? Is our very understanding of space being challenged? It can't be right. It's still just a room, isn't it? Maybe. But the Talmud tells us something very mysterious about the Holy of Holies. The Gemara says, the Ark didn't take up any space in the Mishkan. What, What does that mean? Of course, I had to take up space. It was probably about the size of this thing here. But the Gemara has this whole mathematical equation. You know, you see the width of the Mishkan was only 15 feet wide. But it also says on each side of the ark, there were seven and a half feet of free space. So if there's seven and a half feet here and the seven and a half feet here, but the room is only 15 feet wide, then the only way that works is if this room is either bigger on the inside than on the outside, which is completely preposterous, or the ark itself doesn't take up any space. Now, that doesn't make sense to us, 
But that's because we are squares and triangles meeting a sphere for the first time. We are in the Holy of Holies, past the veil, in the world before space was created. Or we would be if we could go in there. Torah is very clear that no human could enter the Holy of Holies with one, with one exception. Once a year, the Kohen Gadol could enter into that holy space and approach the last separation, the last place where we see the cherubim, but only after certain conditions were met. Amongst other things, when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, he can't wear his regular clothes, which were described in this week's parsha. He has to wear special clothes. His clothes have to be pure white from head to toe. Now, why is that? Imagine this is you taking this journey. You've already crossed backwards through the separation of time and passed through the separation of space. Which realm are you in now? The first realm. The first separation. Before there are animals or land or time or space, there was only light. A deep-sea diver has to wear an atmospheric pressure suit to survive in the water. An astronaut has to wear a spacesuit to survive in space. No less perilous is the job of the high priest, and in order for him to survive in such an alien environment, he has to wear a suit made of light. So now you approach the ark. You see the last set of cherubim, the last separation between the holy of holies and what is contained in the ark. So we understand now how the curtains relate to time and how the veil relates to space. How does the cover of the ark relate to light? What exactly is inside the ark? It's two tablets on which were inscribed the Ten Commandments. It's the written Torah given to Moses by God. But Jewish tradition tells us the Torah didn't just come into existence at Sinai. There's a legend that says in the true beginning, eons before God created light or space or time, God created the Torah with the intention of one day giving it to mankind. But this Torah isn't written on stone. It's, it's something almost unimaginable. The Midrash tells us the Torah was letters of black flame written on parchment of white flame, light mixed with darkness. Welcome to God's world. Inside this little room in the Mishkan, we have created a little piece of God's world inside our own, by going backwards through the three separations that God put into place constructing our universe. So as we end our journey, stepping away from the Ark of the Covenant, out of the Holy of Holies, and finally leaving the Mishkan, I would just have one question to ask. What's with the cherubim? Why do we put cherubim on these partitions instead of lions or monkeys or unicorns or anything else? Well, that one's easy. There's only one other place in Torah where cherubim appear at the gates of the Garden of Eden, the place on earth where God was able to live amongst us. Those cherubim had flaming swords to keep man from ever coming back to Eden. Now the cherubim are back, but this time they don't have swords because they're not here to keep us away. They're here to welcome us in, to draw us back to a place where once again God can live amongst us and we can hear the voice of God calling to us again. I'd like to call the worship team back up at this time. You know, the angels, in a way, represent a fourth separation, an unnatural one, one that was never meant to happen. The separation between God and man, 
But our Messiah has undone that separation for us. Let me quote. And when Yeshua had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Yeshua died on the cross, the veil, the separation between man and God, became undone. The way into the Holy of Holies has been opened up for all people for all time. This week's Parsha gives us wonderful instructions on how to build a Mishkan, but always remember, how isn't as important as why. We built the Mishkan so that God would have a place to live with us, but we don't build it anymore because now God doesn't live in temples made by hands. He lives in the Mishkan we have built in our heart, and now we can all enter into the Holy of Holies through Messiah Yeshua. Shabbat Shalom.